0: Hi, I'm Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. The way we see the world today is informed a lot by our past, both the good and the bad. This is where our podcasts come in. Podcasts like Residential Schools, a three-part series created to honor the stories of survivors, their families and communities, and to commemorate the history and legacy of residential schools in Canada. I didn't want to be an Indian. I didn't know who the hell I wanted to be. I wasn't accepted by the white man, I wasn't accepted by my own people in my reserve. Subscribe to Historica Canada Podcast for deep dives into our past. You can listen to residential schools on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Never stop learning. In
1: 1971, Canada became the first country in the world to adopt an official multiculturalism policy. It was meant to preserve cultural freedoms and recognize the contributions of diverse groups to Canadian society. Today, multiculturalism is a defining feature of the Canadian identity. But for much of our history, that wasn't the case. Listen to A Place to Belong, A History of Multiculturalism in Canada, a five-part series from Historica Canada Join us as we explore the history of multiculturalism in Canada. Subscribe to A Place to Belong on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. We had to wash out the dirty old soiled infected dressing and hang them on the line in the sun and use them the next night. That night, boy, fan flies off the wounds in the daytime to try to prevent the maggots. And uh, we had, of course, unfamiliar medication and treatment. It was quite a new experience.
3: Welcome to Record of Service, a podcast presented by Historica Canada. I'm your host, Maya Foster. In this series, we bring you interviews with Canada's veterans, their stories of life, loss, and service. This episode, we hear from Canadian medical personnel, We're all over the map today with accounts from the North African campaign, D-Day, the Korean War, and more. But first, tales from the Canadian Dental Corps. Just a warning to those that may be listening with young ones around, today's story contains graphic descriptions.
0: During the Depression, times were tough, and a lot of people couldn't afford to get anything more done than emergencies. In other words, they would arrive at the dentist with a raging toothache when something had to be done because a third of the country were unemployed. So dentistry was rather low on people's list of priorities.
3: This posed a problem at the outbreak of the Second World War. For Canadians wanting to enlist, they needed to be dentally fit to serve.
0: They couldn't have decayed teeth. They could have missing teeth, but they had to be in sort of a decent state of repair to go overseas. So there was a an awful lot of dentistry to be done and not enough dentists to do it.
3: This led to the creation of the Canadian Dental Corps, which trained dental students to use field equipment. Dr. Ralph Yorch was one such student. He studied dentistry at the University of Toronto, graduating in early 1944 and serving with the Royal Canadian Air Force in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Our major
0: job was keeping people healthy and comfortable about the only thing which was And this didn't help the war effort, but it certainly helped this one man. We had one man on the station, and I looked at him and I said, come into the dental clinic, I want to have a look at you. And he came in. Well, this poor fellow, his upper front teeth literally were so badly crowded that they stuck straight out. He couldn't close his lips. I'm sure he'd never kissed a girl in his life came from some village somewhere, no one had done anything about it. I thought he would be much happier. And these were the only facilities available to me at the time. So I said to him, we'll take up your upper four front teeth, your central and lateral incisors. I will make you a temporary partial denture to replace these and we will bring these teeth in where I feel we can get them and where they belong. Well, I proceeded to do that and he was the most delighted man in the world. The only problem was his sergeant came a while later and said to me, I wish you'd left that man alone. He was the best man in my section. He was the hardest worker. Now we can't even find him. He's out chasing girls day and night. But on the other hand, he was one very happy airman.
4: I was uh, born in Spring Hill in the 28th of April, 1922. My dad was in the First World War, and I figured it was just uh, the correct thing to do.
3: When Robert Burden first enlisted in the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps, he was told to report to Cogswell Street Military Hospital in Halifax. Not yet 19 years old, Burden weighed only 110 pounds and was slated as Category B, fit for base units of medical service.
4: I told him, no, I wasn't interested in going to a place that wasn't going to move, and I wanted to go to shot military hospital, which I thought was going overseas. And uh, they gave me a ticket and I went to order shot. And on the fourth day of January, 1941, I became f 845 private Robert Arnold Burton. It was sort of crazy when I first started out uh, because they were just building the new hospital building. I uh, swept the floor, scrubbed the floor, shined it and waxed it. And, after I moved beds in, I was taught how to make a hospital bed and a few more basic things, and I became a medical orderly. Maybe I caught on quickly, but soon I was put in charge of all the medical orderly. They noticed that I had my grade 12 and a double-entry bookkeeping and a year and a half of typing in shorthand, so they moved me to the orderly room, where there was only a, a staffed at that time by a major and uh, one sergeant. A letter came in from Number 7 Canadian General Hospital in DeBert saying they wanted a Category A trained clerk to join their unit to proceed overseas immediately. I had gained the weight, so I weighed 120, so I asked a major for a medical exam. He told me to go see a medical officer.
3: On November 11, 1941, Burden shipped out to England, ending up in a hospital in the village of Marston Green, halfway between Coventry and Birmingham. He looked after injured Canadian and British service personnel, as well as civilian bombing casualties. In
4: 1942, we also looked after about hundred of the battle casualties from the Dieppe raid. In June
3: 1944, Robert was sent across the English Channel as part of the Battle of Normandy, the Allies' invasion of Western Europe.
4: We were the first hospital to go in in the invasion, first Canadian hospital to go in after D-Day. We need the space. Big enough to put a 600-bed hospital all in tents. That's 250 uh, of a unit, plus our tents, and uh, the operating room, the x-rays, uh, lab, uh, wards. Everything was under canvas. We had to get a field big enough, clear of the mine, before we set up. When we moved in, the beach said, Get off the beach as fast as you can but under no considerations go outside of those white tapes. They were still, it was still all mined. And uh, we sort of went up this road in height of land and was sort of congregating there with an ME-109.
3: That's a German Messerschmitt fighter aircraft.
4: Came streaking just over the treetops, and uh, you could see the flashes of the machine gun and the cannon from the wings as they were coming straight at us. But he was so low, you could hear the snap of the bullets from that as they went overhead, but he was so low that the bullets were all coming horizontal above us. So they would hit somewhere beyond where we were. Nobody was
3: injured. Robert also vividly remembered how his team of four admitted 450 to 500 casualties a day following the beach landings.
4: It was five days and five nights that the only time I left admitting department in the tent was to uh, go to the bathroom or get something to eat.
3: At the end of the war, Robert and his outfit liberated Stalag 10B, a prisoner of war camp near San Bostel in northwestern Germany. They came upon soldiers and political prisoners who were in such bad shape that they were able to transport two men on a single stretcher.
4: Instead of getting five in the we get 10 in the to move them down. If you give them a cigarette, they ate it. They were fed a special diet every three hours night and day after two weeks there were uh, five of them out in the sun out in the yard and I carried a camera all through the war and I took pictures of those five men I took five pictures actually of those five survivors from that camp and we just put them in the beds right from the ambulance and then we go in and uh, go in and get all of the information which was a little difficult in that uh, they were every language of Europe, all of the dialects of Russia and so on like that. Uh, and of course, we had no interpreters. We had to get all of this information ourselves: who they were, where they from. One fellow uh, was doing one side of the ward and I was doing the other. When I went to get the, put them in the, the main uh, book, all the names, uh, I said, oh, and what were you doing on my side of the ward? He said, well, I wasn't. I said, how do you explain this? The first man he saw and the first man I saw were Russians. They had the last name was the same. One initial was the same. One year's difference in age. And they came from the same village. They were brothers. Neither one knew the other one was still alive. Neither one knew that his brother was in that camp. And yet they uh, landed in our hospital, their feet pointing to each other. Between 1940 and
3: 1943, Italian forces and the infamous General Rommel, with his German expeditionary force, ran amok in North Africa. Just a heads up, this next story contains graphic descriptions of wounded soldiers.
2: Uh, You see, Rommel, German general, was going through North Africa uh, very fast. So they couldn't establish hospitals in North Africa. That's why there was a great call for uh, hospitals to be established in South Africa, because that was the first Commonwealth country, or the nearest Commonwealth country, to the fighting in Africa.
3: New Brunswick native Betty Dimmock was 19 years old when she joined the South African Medical Service as a nurse.
2: agreement was we were on loan from the Canadian Army to South Africa, accepting South African pay and discipline. The pay was very poor, but one-third of Canadian pay. The agreement was that we stay for one year.
3: Wounded Allied soldiers streamed in from the north. As Betty recalled, they would wrap badly injured soldiers in plaster and ship them south.
2: Some of them never made the trip, of course. We had no antibiotics. It was before the days of antibiotics. Maggots did the work instead. And uh, uh, we had very few dressings. We had to wash out the dirty, old, soiled, infected dressings and hang them on the line in the sun and use them the next night. Boy's fan flies off the wounds in the daytime to try to prevent the maggots. Uh, One unforgettable case, a young English lad from North African campaign with numerous injuries in complete body cast with maggots crawling out from under the cast in various locations. Removal of the cast exposed unexpected severe shoulder injuries. The area was filled with foul-smelling, purulent subjects crawling with maggots. Apparently, that he had had no care since leaving Egypt. This patient begged me to get someone other than myself to perform the procedure. Only because he was aware of what I would find, and he knew that I was not aware of it. I needed a soup ladle to remove the pus and maggots before I'd lost many meals. I had, it was bad. And that, you know, for a young nurse, was a little bit rough.
3: After a year in South Africa, Betty opted out of a second contract.
2: And I wanted to get in the Canadian Army, so I thought this was time for me to go home. It was very hard to leave these boys because they were really wonderful boys and accepting the circumstances well.
3: In the spring of 1944, Betty was stationed in England.
2: When we first went to England, we'd been associated with antibiotics, which was penicillin. And that was given every four hours, at least, sometimes more frequently. And a big amount, it wasn't too well purified, and of course keeping needles going, keeping them sharp and everything, we had to do that. And so some of the needles were, were not too sharp when we had to shoot them into the boys. They just screamed, it was terrible. We didn't like doing it, we, did, we had to do it. And they'd hide. That was a hard, hard treatment really for them, getting these shots of penicillin. And it was hard for us to do. But it's the first experience we had with the results of antibiotics.
3: Betty stayed with her unit, number 23, until shortly before VE Day, when she joined the reinforcements for number one Canadian General Hospital in Nijmegen, Holland. At the end of the war, she returned to Canada.
2: When I got back, I think the rations were still on somewhat, and uh, it was a different life. Everybody had changed. Civilians as well as military people. Because, I mean, it was a war that took the women back to work.
1: They were on small ships, maybe 30 people or 20. Some of them were junks. Some of them were powered.
3: Leonard Scotty Wells served aboard HMCS Cayuga during the Korean War, assisting the Republic of Korea's Navy.
1: They occupied a lot of the islands, behind enemy lines, and they still retain those islands. So our job was to help these people. And we would go in and if we had extra provisions, we'd send them ashore because they'd they'd send us a uh, message that they were running out of provisions or they had no rice left or something. So we'd give them what we could.
3: While serving in Korea, there was a doctor that made an impression on Leonard and his shipmates, Dr. Sear.
1: He was an officer, he was a short kind of heavy-set guy. Not many officers would come into the mess deck of lower ratings like us, but he would often come down into the communications mess or the seamens' mess and talk to you. He was a real nice guy. And like whereas the other officers generally were British, uh, you know, not to associate too much with the lower deck people, but he was not that way.
3: Not only was Seer chummy for an officer, but he was a darn good physician, as Leonard recalled.
1: We were on a very big raid one day, and we were giving gunfire support, I don't think there was another ship there, except the ROK Navy and uh, there was a few guys shot up and there were three or four of them brought back to our ship, which is normal. They were badly wounded. And I remember as if it was yesterday, I was sent back aft from the bridge for something. And there was three or four stretchers laid out uh, off the captain's cabin. And Dr. Sear came out, he'd just finished operating on one of these fellows. And you could, he was just dripping in sweat. You could see, I mean, obviously, the pressure the guy was under was unbelievable. But he was just dripping with sweat. And uh, according to all records, he actually saved their lives. He, had, he took a bullet near one guy's heart out. He did pull a captain's tooth one night who had a wisdom tooth that was really bothering him, something awful. This was before this particular action, but the captain says, i got to have this tooth out. Sear went and read a book on dentistry. Next morning, he pulled the captain's tooth. And he said, that was the best job I ever had done.
3: (laughs) And then one day.
1: My friend was a decoder. He was a communication specialist. He decoded the message that Sear was likely an imposter. The message was taken back to the captain and the captain said, I don't believe it's not possible. So I guess he called Sear in and Sear admitted it so that he was an imposter, that he wasn't a doctor. So the next time we seen him, it was a couple days later. We were, I think it was the Ceylon, was a British, British cruiser. We pulled alongside the Ceylon and we sent him over by jackstay on a stretcher because he'd, he'd taken drugs. And then he was sent back to Tokyo, I think, and flown back to Canada and discharge.
3: After his discharge, Sear's imposter tricks continued, first as a warden in a penitentiary and then as a minister at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Anaheim, California. Sear was still barred from Canada when HMCS Cayuga was planning its reunion in 1979.
1: One of our messmates on the Cayuga was on the Vancouver Police Department, so he arranged for Sear to come to Canada because he was really forbidden from coming to Canada. So he did come up for the reunion. So he was just the same as ever. We all shook hands.
3: Record of Service is a production of the Memory Project Speakers Bureau and Archive, connecting veterans and Canadian Forces members with school and community groups from coast to coast. The Memory Project has been made possible in part by the Government of Canada. We are a program of Historica Canada, a nonprofit offering programs that you can use to explore, learn, and reflect on Canadian history and what it means to be Canadian. Go to thememoryproject.com to browse our archive of interviews or to book a speaker for your classroom or community event. If you're a veteran or an active member of the Canadian Forces, please contact us to find out how you can become a speaker. If you like this episode, you can order a free copy of The Memory Project's Record of Service video series. This new DVD highlights experiences from the Second World War to modern peace operations. Visit thememoryproject.com to find out more. Additional text from this episode comes from our sister program, The Canadian Encyclopedia. You can find links to their articles on the Second World War, the Korean War, and much, much more at thecanadianencyclopedia.ca. Follow us on social media at memory underscore project and at historica canada bye for now next time on record of service
4: one of my brothers he was a code talker too, uh, too. his name is peter and uh, he was a hard-working man you know he couldn't find a better man to work come pay day, he'd uh, you know he'd go on a toot you know till time to go back to work and he'd
0: he'd drink to get drunk and then he'd cry sit there and cry, I should have been killed, I should have been killed.